The world and its events had led to a challenging time when it comes to our mental health over the last few years. Mental health care, while essential, doesn't reach enough Americans to build resilience and cope with whatever life may throw their way, says today's incredible guest, Rita Brock. What we're seeing is people suffering, and that's not entirely a mental health problem. That's called moral distress, Dr. Brock explains. It's the outrage, anxiety, fear, shame, guilt that people feel in response to events, and it can't be fixed, but it can be addressed, and it can be managed. Mental health family, I am very, very excited to be back on this show it's another week, and I hope you had a great week in the past week and a great week ahead. I appreciate you taking time to sit down with us here on a mental health break. For this episode, we are joined by Senior Vice President and Director of the Shea Moral Injury Center at Volunteers of America. She leads the organization's efforts to deepen the understanding about moral injury in many populations who do experience it. The center builds on Volunteers of America's work spending more than a century of helping veterans and others who live with this emotional trauma. And I love the idea of helping veterans in any way you can. A little more about Dr. Brock. In her first master's degree, she studied youth development, psychology of religion, and pastoral counseling, and was employed as a youth minister. I am about ready to get the show started. And as we have someone on the show who is familiar with youth development, this week's spotlight story at the halfway point will be on an article titled, Adolescent Mental Health from the World Health Organization. We'll get Rita's take on it and so much more. First, before we get all of that value from Dr. Brock, I have to ask you, Rita, what does mental health mean to you? Well, I think it's a very complicated thing. It involves our ability to think and reflect and feel the serious moral challenges of life mm -hmm. and to be able to sustain in those challenges our most important relationships including our relationships to ourselves and our own meaning system. I like that, to our own systems. So you're saying everyone's mental health may be different then. We're not a one-size-fits-all. That's right. And, and my own background and work on this is in the direction of spiritual health, which is the intersection of religion and psychology. I like because that. Because I think meaning systems are often religious for people. Very well said there, and I appreciate you kicking us off, Rita, and everyone again, welcome back to A Mental Health Break. This is the podcast where we normalize the conversation around mental health. I am excited to have Rita join for everything I said in the intro and so much more. I looked into her a little more. She's passionate about her work. She's really her all into this mental health community, and I think this is a new perspective that can help everyone listening on. We were talking behind the show. We're both common interests in baseball, so we had a little baseball banter. Maybe some of that will come up throughout the show as well. She had some Mariners fanship in her. I had the Yankees, some great matchups back when I was the kid in the playoffs with Ichiro and that 2001 team. But that's for another time. Rita, let's dive right into mental health. I would love for you to share your personal mental health journey. At Tampa Counseling and Wellness, we want to remind you that it's okay to not be okay. Reaching out for support and asking for a little extra help can be overwhelming, but everyone deserves a safe space to heal. We're so honored to be that space for Florida residents. If you want to learn more about our services or you'd like to set up a free consultation with one of our clinicians, you can call or text us at 813-520-2807. We're looking forward to growing with you.
Sure. Uh, I actually spent the first five years of my life in a Japanese Buddhist family. And then I was sort of dropped into the U.S. military world because <clears throat> my stepfather was in the U.S. military and married my mother when I was two and a half. And so I had all of these struggles understanding a world um, that was really, really different from the Japanese Buddhist family with my grandparents and everybody that I was a big extended family. I was raised in my grandfather was a, a serious Buddhist. He preached at the local temple. Okay. So it wasn't just cultural. It was deeply part of our spirituality as when I was a kid. And so I switched languages, religions, culture, country, everything um, when I was six years old, first grade. And so that was already a shock, but it was uh, also a time in the mid-1950s when there was a lot of anti-Japanese hatred. And so I grew up um, not understanding why sometimes people were mean to me or even violent, like hitting me at school and things. Um, And um, am I you know, in my Japanese sort of stoicism, I didn't tell my parents about any of that because I didn't even know how to explain it. Um, and so so really what, um, what helped me a lot in college was the de- development and the arise of the civil rights movement, which helped explain to me some of the social forces in my life that impacted me as a kid. Um, and it meant a lot to me to learn those things and to meet. I went to college in California where there was a, a, a growing Asian American movement and to meet Japanese Americans who were politically engaged and active and could articulate to me what happened to me as a child. It really helped a lot. It put a name on it. I think that's an amazing advice for everyone, not that specifically, but go find something you can resonate with someone you can resonate with. I think that might had that made things a little not easier for you, but able to understand. Yeah. It made sense. You know, like you often carry these moral challenges and things that happen to you and you don't have a way to explain them to yourself. You just know you're in pain about it and it's puzzling and you, and if you're able to forbear and just hang in there and keep moving forward, it's still, it's a weight you carry. It just weighs you down. And having somebody just put a name on it and say, it's not your fault, <laughs> it, it, that these things just happen to people sometimes, that that really lifted a whole lid on a lot of things that I hadn't had a way to process before. And it gave me language for it. It gave me a way to um, help prevent it happening to other people. Um or help other people who are experiencing the same thing process it by talking to them about it. I spent 14 years in a anti-racism human rights program for Los Angeles school districts um, and uh, talked to lots and lots of youth who experienced similar things and just giving them a chance to talk about it and say, yeah, that really did happen to you and it's terrible um, can be really freeing. I love the perseverance and all the positivity you're extending from your experience. You're just making the world a better place. And I love when my guests come on here. And like I said in the beginning, such passion behind what they do. But once you started exploring all of these things, did you have a transformative moment that led you to the mental health world? Or what led you to where you are today? I think it was that. Four, it's like the 14 years I spent with youth. I did that 
in the starting in the mid 70s when there was nothing written about sexual abuse of children or um, domestic violence. Um, the feminist world was just beginning to talk about domestic violence. And so I, I was working with other adult counselors and we were just sort of figuring it out as we went along. It wasn't in the mental health discourse. It wasn't in the religious discourse. It wasn't anywhere. And so um, from that process, I would say that I, I became committed to alleviating human suffering in any form I encountered it. And mental health is one of those. Um, and I could see the devastating impact on teenagers of family violence, addiction, uh, you know, all of those sorts of things. And what I realized in that process was that people can carry awful things like that and still function. They're, they're not, uh, as we would call it, psych psychiatric cases. They, they weren't an out of touch with reality. They were just deeply suffering and caring a whole lot. And so I got very, very interested in not only uh, patterns and families that cause that kind of suffering, but how the ideas we carry also can contribute to suffering. So, and that's a lot of religious ideas. Yes, what we what we feed our mind, those things they do yeah. play a major difference. And what you get in your head as your own self worth. If you're told you're worthless, I have a friend who was told at six years old by his father that he was born a mistake, and that was the reason that they oh were that his parents were splitting up. And he spent his entire adult life trying to prove himself to some male adult who would love him back and be his father figure. This is a horrible thing to do to someone. Yes, and it prevents them from really blossoming into the person they know they can be, follow their goals, follow their passions, and that's yeah, terrible. Yeah, I, I just remember this young woman who you could tell she had a, a lively spirit. She loved to sing, and uh, but there was something flat about her, like she wasn't fully herself. And at one point when we were all talking about family issues, she started to share how she had been um, a pretty good student in high school and tried really hard. And her father, who was a postman, kept telling his you know, children, you had to do well in school and get a scholarship to college so you wouldn't have to be a postman. And, uh, and when she got a B in math, instead of noticing that all her other grades were A's, he yelled at her about the B in math, even though she tried really hard. And that just sort of deflated her sense of yes. being a valuable person and that she felt like a total failure. And so that's what she said. She said, I feel like a failure because I didn't do a, get an A in math. And I looked at her and I said, so why do you think your father is so hard on you about that? And she said, well, you know, he wants us all to have a better life than he had. And I looked at her and I said, so what wh do you think he feels about his own life then? And she sort of paused a minute and she said, I guess he kind of feels like a failure. And I said to her, so you're doing fine you're making mostly A's and you're really trying hard and he's not noticing because he's afraid you will fail. So it seems to me like he's making you feel like he feels. And she just lit up and she said, yeah, that's right. And I said, do you really feel like a failure? And she said, no. And that was like magical. Some light came on in her. Um, we, we, strategize we problem solve with her about how to talk to her father 
about how it, it felt to be told those things and for him not to notice how hard she tried. And, and we had to work really hard to make sure she didn't make him feel even worse as a dad. Right. So it was, but that kind of just, it's just a tweak. It's a little thing, but it just, that some switch got turned in her um, that helped her claim her own sense that no, she's not a failure. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that story. Everyone yeah. listening on, you are not alone. One of the many goals of this show is to let you know that you are not alone. And that story right there, I hope, proves that. So thank you for sharing that again. And I think it's now a perfect time to head into the spotlight story. And I think we're going to have a lot of great advice and feedback from Dr. Brock as this week's spotlight story I mentioned is on adolescent mental health. It's an article from the World Health Organization with some key facts, some areas of concern, and so much more. I'll delve deeper into a little bit right now and then bring Dr. Brock back on. Some key facts. One in seven 10 to 19-year-olds experiences a mental disorder, accounting for 13% of the global burden of disease in this age group. Depression, anxiety, and behavioral disorders are among the leading causes of illness and disability in adolescents. Suicide is the fourth leading cause of death among 15 to 19-year-olds, and the consequences of failing to address adolescent mental health conditions extend to adulthood, as we said, impairing both physical and mental health and limiting opportunities to lead fulfilling lives as adults. This article has a lot of information that I think is valuable to share. One in six people are aged 10 to 19 years old. Adolescence is a unique, informative time, physical, emotional, and social changes, including exposure to puberty, abuse, violence, can make adolescents vulnerable to these mental health problems. And as I said, globally, it is estimated that one in seven, which is 14% individuals in that age experience mental health conditions, yet largely recognized and untreated still. I want to look at some emotional disorders content here. They are common among adolescents and anxiety disorders, which may involve panic or excessive worry, are the most prevalent in this age group and are more common older than among younger adolescents. Estimated 3.6% of 10 to 14-year-olds and 4.6% of 15 to 19-year-olds experience anxiety disorder. Depression is estimated to occur in 1% of those 10 to 14, 2% in 15 to 19. You can see even the jump in percentage amongst younger age groups as they get older. And we'll touch right now on eating disorders. I think that's important. Then we'll bring Rita back on. Eating disorders such as anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa commonly emerge during adolescence and young adulthood. Eating disorders involve abnormal eating, abnormal eating behavior, excuse me, and preoccupation with food accompanied in most instances by concerns about body weight and shape. Anorexia nervosa can lead to premature death often due to medical complications or suicide, and has higher mortality than any other mental disorder. Rita, what do you take away from some of the things I shared there? I think that um, the kind of betrayals that happen to people by their primary caregivers or the people around them have lifelong consequences when they're not addressed. And I think that that is very clear about the, you know, the thing called the adverse childhood experience scale now that's being used for decades around trauma informed care of people is you have to attend to those things. They don't just go away if you ignore them and carry on with your life. They, they, they just haunt your life 
for your entire life. And I've worked with um, friends that, that do rehabilitation work in San Quentin prison with people who are in for life sentences who are violent offenders. And all of them that come through their program have some original childhood trauma yep. that wreck them in some way that they couldn't recover from. And just having enough trust and being in a group of people that believe them to tell the story of the horror that they experienced at four, five, six, seven years old really released some power in them that had sort of been like a claw on their life that just drove their life toward violence and anger and outrage because they had been so betrayed. And doing that actually enabled them then to take moral responsibility for the harm they have done and to apologize if they can, to um, really deeply regret the behavior and understand the impact it had on other people to in other words, to restore their sense of empathy and compassion. And I think what all of those um, people who who finally got that chance, it really transformed their lives. But if they had had one person, and this is research on people who go through the child welfare system and all the things that they suffer, if they're able to cope and come through that and still be okay, as it were, not broken and angry and all of those ways that that is a normal human response to being harmed, that one caring, trustworthy, safe adult made all the difference. And it didn't have to be a parent. It didn't have, you know, it could have been a counselor at school. It could have been a neighbor, a minister, a, a friend, um, just somebody that actually believed in them and was a safe person to be with can make a huge difference. It's, it really sounds terrible that something that was not in their control as a youth, they didn't have control over what was happening, went full circle and now a life sentence from stemming from one of these incidents. Everyone out there, remember to be kind and try to use this story as fuel to do the right thing and just set an example for others as you never know who can be more impressionable than others at a young age. Uh, you can even look at it. We're just kids. They're sponge. You know, we're younger. We absorb all this information. We were all kids. And as you get older, yeah, it's not as easy to learn. Like for me, example, I've been taking Spanish lessons over the last year and a half or so and retaining a language as an adult is much more difficult than it was even learning Italian in middle school or learning things in elementary school, you it was, you know, you absorbed it. Yeah. So that's a great example there. Thank you, Rita, for that. Yeah. But now we're gonna well, I think, and didn't you in your own life have, I mean, because of your accident, you kind of had to relearn English even. I have relearned how to walk, talk, spell, use the bathroom. Yeah. It was all, <laughs> all was, of that. Um, so, so you, so, so you, it, I think it's very interesting how well you've now come back into it, you. that somewhere in your brain, it was still there. Um, it just had to be accessed in some other way than the normal ways. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate the kind words. I've spoke about it on past episodes, not really recently where I was a student who looked over a piece of paper, could get a B on an exam before, no problem. I was now a student for finishing my finance after in the MBA. I had to read, write, type, read, write, type, read, write, type over and over and over and over again to retain a tenth of the information. And then yeah. until about six years later, I didn't notice the memory increase. It was when I was writing my first book is when I first finally remembered something I didn't write down. I was so used to writing things on post-its and typing it in iCalendar, desk calendar. 
And then I started remembering things I didn't write down and it made me feel great. But I've really always put my brain into overload as an entrepreneur between the books, the pod, you know, everything. So I'm constantly doing things. And I think that pays major dividends in my recovery and ways for me to get better. But absolutely. Yeah. I would like to ask for some more advice on your end. What are some things that work for you, short-term, long-term mental health initiatives? Um, I think the the most important thing in life is to have friends. Mm-hmm. Um, I I've had a very long career, um, and I've I've shifted careers several times in my life. I didn't do the same thing all of my life, and to have friends that knew me when I was just a student, just somebody, no, not somebody that people have on podcasts, but just a student. Um, And even from high school, I have a good friend from high school still that that has been for me, a really, really important base of support for who I really am. And I take on all these roles, you know, expert on this professor, administrator, um, a chaplain and those kinds of things, but there's a there's a there's a value in people having knowing you over your life course, because sometimes you can get carried away or lose yourself, and they're a good grounding. Um, and when the pandemic started, I had two friends uh, we've known each other since grad school, and we realized we weren't going to get to vacation every year together like we like to do, and so. We started a Friday cocktail hour Zoom. We all like right. to go wine tasting. So we just wine and Friday afternoons. And that's awesome. Yeah. That's been so important for me in surviving the pandemic because I live alone. I got a cat too that helped. Yeah. But 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 having friends who you trust, who are safe, is is a really, really important skill in life. And the older you get, the harder it is to have them. I love that. I value the relationships in my life very much. And the people close to me certainly know that. I even talk about it in my books. Mr. Lancey talks mental health, where why being supportive for others and also being supportive for yourself is super important for your mental health. You can grab that book on Amazon, but you could even go as far as this we talk about in those books as well. You can't be um, others' best friends if you're not your own best friend. If you're not taking That's care right. of yourself. How can you possibly, and then in the least selfish way possible, I'm saying that if you're not taking care of yourself, how can you take care of others? Yeah. And for me, whenever possible, I try to spend at least an hour outdoors exercising, walking. I used to run, but I'm getting too old to run. (laughs) Um, But I still do my hour outside every day whenever possible. And if I don't have time to go run, I try to actually work outside. Um, because I think the sunlight, the light, outdoor light is really, really important to sleeping. Nature is and huge. So, and then that's the second thing I'm obsessive about is sleep. I need my rest every day. I go to bed on the earlier side for my age, I'd say, but I, I value my eight hours of sleep. Exercising yeah. every day has to start with that. And it does more for my mental health and physical health. And I talk about that a lot. And the sunlight does so much for you, mood booster. And it's a nice thing for me to take my eyes off the computer because I'm usually exactly. staring at that all day. <laughs> that, that hour of looking at trees or, yeah, or something sounds. else. I yeah. have my, and I, you know, shout out to yeah. Dr. Richard Basio, who's been on the show in the beginning, friend from high school, challenged me to on my walks, leave my phone inside or put it on a timer on silent and take in the natural noises and 
birds, cars, you name it. It's absolutely uh, take you out of yourself. It's also um, a time when I can often digest what happened during the day. Because mm -hmm. if something upsetting Reflection. happened during the day, I don't usually sleep well. So that hour, I say, okay, let's figure this out and try to process it so that I, it, it doesn't keep me up at night. That's, that's that's one sign of moral distress is that something keeps bothering you and it interferes with your sleep and it will slowly erode your best self. Mm -hmm. Very well said. I without exercise, I overthink I'm not in the right mind state and certainly don't sleep as well. But before we sign off, Rita, I would like to ask you for one piece of advice to give to all of our mental health champions out there who may be struggling. If you are feeling not yourself, things are bothering you, you're pulling away from relationships that have been important, you find yourself emotionally detached or flat, reach out. Don't, don't hold it in and think it will go away. And uh, we have a program online that is an hour to with other people that's just peer facilitated. It's not a therapy program or anything. Nobody's trying to fix you. It's just a place to share those kinds of things. We call it REST. Uh, Resilient Strength Time is the actual name and the acronym is REST. Um, but something like that, some place that you feel comfortable and safe enough to talk about it is really, really important. Or not. It doesn't matter who that is or where that is, but it's important to have those spaces. You need a safe space. You can call it anything you like, but you need that opportunity to give your, give yourself that freedom. And yep. I use freedom weirdly there, but I think that's the way to put it where you feel safe. Yeah. When I was a youth minister, I, I both worked in that LA school district and at a church as a youth minister. And when I was doing that work, you know, in a group, they'd all be doing whatever they're doing. And then often at some point, one of them would ask to talk to me privately. And then I'd find out what was really going on with them. And it was such a privilege that they trusted me. Absolutely. I yeah. mean, it goes a long way based on, again, your passion, your character and all that goes involved. So thank you for that. And thank you for an amazing show today, Rita. I'm very glad that you were able to join our community of mental health champions. Where can everybody find you? your website, social media, anything you would like to share? Yep. We're, I'm at VOA. That's Victor, Oscar, and I don't know what the G is, but anyway, the, the A, I mean, VOA.org backslash moral injury. That's where you can find me. And um, my email is R, as in a red, R Brock, B-R-O-C-K, at VOA.org. And I'm always happy to get emails. Thank you for sharing that. Sure. Thank you for coming on once again. Everyone tuning in, thank you for listening to our show. It's been a great, great episode, and I look forward to next week as well. I am at Vincent A. Lancy on all social media, YouTube, and my website is vincentalancy.com. Be sure to check out Mental Health Week and Mr. Lancy Talks Mental Health on Amazon now. And until next Tuesday, have a great week. Thank you, Rita. Thank you. This was great. <laughs>